0: Today on PI Perspectives, we have retired FBI agent Jim Casey. Jim talks about his transition from a high-profile government position to a self-employed private investigator. We talk about the struggles you can face and how to avoid the pitfalls. Jim brings some great insight and stories about some of the high-profile cases he's worked on, both in and out of the government. This episode is brought to you by CrossTracks case management software. CrossTracks integrates with programs you already use like QuickBooks, Scope, ScopeNow, investigation, video editor, Word, and more. The integrations combined with powerful features such as automated audio transcription and report generation help investigators generate revenue and improve efficiency. The system can be customized for any investigative specialty, so start your free trial today at Crosstracks.co and use promo code PIP20. Now let's join the guys and jump into Jim Casey's unique perspective. Here's your host, private investigator,
1: Matt Spare. And welcome everybody to the next episode of PI Perspectives. This is Matt Spare, your host. Today we have a real treat for you guys. We are joined by Jim Casey, a retired FBI agent. Jim's got 25 years experience in the FBI, about 32 years in the investigative field or or policing field, and he has since transitioned into the private sector. So. We are going to talk today about uh, Jim's career a little bit, but we're also going to talk more importantly about that transition of leaving the federal government or law enforcement and, and going to the private sector and becoming a, a private investigator. So, Jim, I want to welcome you to the program. How are you doing today?
2: Hey, great. Thanks, Matt, for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, so thanks for being here today. Hey, we're all in the middle of the shutdown, the stay-at-home. So uh, what's your day look like these days?
2: So it's really interesting because... Um, we, we kind of – I've been with a security firm for about three years, which focused primarily on manned security, guards, armed guards, uh, unarmed guards, federal contracts. And we've spun off an operation recently where we're really going to what I think is my forte, which is the you know private investigations, crisis management, cyber, due diligence, things like that. And interestingly enough, we decided to make this move about six weeks ago. So I've spent about the last six weeks kind of building out the new part of the business. It's something I've done before. I did it okay. back in uh, 2012, 2013. And so I'm kind of reconstituting that and spending my day doing, you know, the back back office type things to get that business back up.
1: Yeah, well, when you are stay at home, I guess you have the extra time to do that, right? Correct. <laughs> Shelter Follow in place. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we're, all, we're all finding new and interesting ways to spend our time, uh, but it definitely has been a, a challenge. I'm, I'm up here in New York and uh, I believe you're in Florida, correct? Correct. North Florida. Right, right. Okay. Tell me a little bit of, uh, about your background. I had mentioned uh, that you started off um, as a police officer. So walk me through how you transitioned that into a, a federal position.
2: Sure. So um, 1981, fresh out of college, I literally had an appointment to the Arlington County Virginia Police Department a month before I retired. I mean, retired before I graduated. Uh, A week after graduation, I was in the police academy. Uh, Three months later, I was driving around the streets of Arlington County, driving a patrol car and 22 years old badge on my chest tip on my gun on my hip and basically protecting the, the uh, citizens of arlington county i learned a heck of a lot in about five years uh, mostly in patrol evening and midnight shifts i applied to the freds like a lot of people in the northern virginia area did fairfax arlington alexandria pds we we're kind of a breeding ground for the federal agencies right. um had a application process with the bureau in process and uh they they notified me that it, there was a hiring freeze for whatever reason, suspended my application. I got picked up by diplomatic security, went there for two years. Uh, the FBI called me back and said, we reconstituted the program. If you want to come back, um, all you have to do is a couple little steps and you know, you're know you welcome in, into the program. And, and I did. So I, 1987, I, uh, I transitioned from diplomatic security over to the Bureau, went to Quantico, my third academy in what, like five years? Right six years and uh and then became FBI agent wow. went to Detroit for nine years got in the management track and uh, did that for the next 25 years
1: right and you you were um not only in Detroit you bounced around to a couple different locations right
2: yeah Detroit for like I said almost nine years I mostly did uh violent crime in Detroit which is a big deal back in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. uh I was back at headquarters in a counterterrorism section went to Indianapolis as a squad supervisor uh, Cincinnati is an assistant special agent in charge. Back to the National Security Council was a fabulous uh, assignment, sort of a graduate school education in the way the executive branch works. I did that for two years, and then eventually uh, I was fortunate enough to be a special agent in charge of the FBI's Jacksonville division, right. and, and I retired from there.
1: Nice, so I, I mean it was kind of an interesting time for you to be there, and we're going to talk about your career there later on in the program, um, and some of the things you got involved in. But but what I'm interested about is, um, yeah, you know, the advent of technology. I mean, from from when you started to when you you finished, I mean, there was a real jump in in the things that we're able to do. Um, so what were the things that you found to be really useful, and the things that that maybe you picked up? Um, while um, working for the federal government that uh, are are some skill sets that you find very valuable today in what you're doing?
2: Sure. So no surprise that the FBI has always been kind of behind the curve with technology, at least the time I was there. I think now they're much more cutting edge than they were. But, you know, looking back to 9-11, right after that happened, there were literally agents going home to fire up their AOL accounts to send pictures (laughs) of terrorists back and forth. (laughs) Because they couldn't do it from their, you know, very antiquated uh, FBI systems. Right. But, and having said that, I mean, the FBI finally did get it right. They developed a system, a case management system that's very robust to this day. But it, it took a long time, and it was, right. it was painful after 9-11 getting to that point. But, you know, I've always had the feeling that, you know, investigations are about being on the street, knocking on doors, talking to people, developing evidence developing informants talking to somebody who knows what's going on so right. you know technology is really important it helps you kind of as they say connect the dots right but it, it will never replace the, the human interaction that's required to develop a successful investigation
1: oh I agree with you completely so one of the things what I really championed for in the past like I don't know four years or so is uh, this, this thing I call electronic canvassing and mm-hmm. essentially it's the idea of doing that door knock but electronically. You know, cause like being in New York, things happen all over the place that people witness and they post about it and they say, Oh my God, like, I just saw this thing happen. I can't believe, you know, this person's just died or, or I hope they're okay or something like that. And it's, it's on social media and then they go on with their lives. And by the time the police arrive, nobody knows about them. They're gone. Right. right. Um, so it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that real life thing because that, you know, using the electronic canvassing is the foot in the door, right? If you find out who they are, now you actually have to contact them and you have to have uh, the social skills <laughs> to to interview somebody and ask them the right questions. So, you know, it, the two really do go hand in hand. I don't, I think you're right. I don't think that uh, good old door knock is ever going to be replaced by uh, by technology, but it's definitely, there's things out there that can help us do what we do. But
2: there's no crime that ever gets committed that somebody doesn't know what happened. Right. It's just a matter of talking to enough people and getting sure. to that right person who can say, "Hey, I kind of know what happened here. Right. And I'm, and I'm willing to tell you.
1: Right. Right. So do you find like a lot of the skills that you picked up working for the government, as far as interviewing people are skills that you, you use today?
2: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, interviewing is the most important skill. I kind of got involved and I was infatuated with sort of this, the, the, the school of interview and interrogation. One of my best friends in Detroit was the polygraph examiner there. Sure and and he was such a good interviewer i mean he was the type of guy that when he was interviewing you know a criminal suspect i don't, I don't know what the percentage was but it's probably more than 50% he never had to turn the machine on and mm. you know, he just had that ability to talk to somebody and sort of elicit that information and, and it's just it's just an invaluable skill i was queried by somebody 2 days ago in the IT arena wanted to know what she could do to make herself more valuable as a candidate, as a, as a CISO, a chief information security officer. My recommendation was don't talk about your technical skills. Talk about your ability to talk to people, write a report, work uh, a big room, do a PowerPoint presentation, things like that. Those are skills that, you know, really are undervalued today.
1: Yeah. I mean, folks that know how to use Excel spreadsheets are still very valuable, I think. Right, right, right. Or even those that know how to how to do WordPress and, and you know work on websites. I mean, there's real value right. behind that, and yep. uh, it's kind of plug and play. But if you know, there are plenty of people that don't know how to do it, so it's uh, it's always a challenge. Uh, yeah, we had uh, Stephen Komorek from uh, Conflict International on recently, uh, doing human lie detecting, and it was just mm-hmm. it's fascinating that whole concept of like not needing uh, technology or a machine to, to really get a a beat on somebody as to whether or not they're trying to deceive you regarding a particular topic. I thought it was really, really interesting. So it really is your company now, FCS global advisors. What type of services do you offer to your clients?
2: So this is sort of a reboot of what I was doing in 2012, 2013. When I first retired from the Bureau, Uh, I spun up a little company and, and was doing, you know, kind of a high end investigation, some, uh, financial crimes, deep background investigations, some death investigation. Interestingly enough, in two years, I did three death investigations, um, which I would never have predicted. But right. the previous company, sort of the sister company of FCS Global Advisors, is FCS First Coast Security, which is you know a 2,500-person man guarding operation. Wow. I brought my licenses and my uh, PI license and things like that to that company. And we decided to kind of spin it off and and you know reconstitute what I was doing. So we're looking at doing that sort of the higher end investigations for clients, litigation support, um, due diligence for business decisions, right. uh, deep background investigations for companies that are making a board hire or the university who wants to hire a, you know somebody for the board of regents and things like that. I, I think those skills are. Um, you know, really underappreciated. I think that companies make big decisions without having a lot of information sometimes. Right. Um, they, they work off of resumes or word of mouth without, you know, if somebody told you they went to Duke University Law School, did they really? Right. Um, it might be worth it to, you know, have somebody go down and pull the records at Duke University Law School and make sure they really went there. Or yeah. to knock on doors and talk to their neighbors or their yep. former uh, employment associates, things like that.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, even uh, there, there is a lot of um, information online if you know where to look to verify all that stuff. But I'm sure it happens all the time. And I think one of the things that's really going to take off now is uh, you know, all the charities and things that have been created for the uh, COVID-19. You know, people wanting to, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, get involved with a charity or donate or, or you know, uh, support a particular cause and not vetting and doing their due diligence on that particular charity uh, and uh, you know, being taken to the cleaners on it, I think you're going to see a lot of fraud um, going forward, where you know the proper vetting isn't isn't being done on those uh, particular nonprofit organizations.
2: And comparatively, it's really cheap to do it. I mean, right. it, it doesn't cost a lot to get sort of that that little background check to make sure that what somebody says is true. Sure, you know, really is true.
1: Sure. Sure. And if we don't, you know, we can always bring in uh, Steve Komorek <laughs> to do his uh, <laughs> to do his lie detecting. We'll get to the bottom of it. Exactly. Um, okay. So we're going to jump out real quick for a commercial uh, break for our sponsors and all that. And when we get back in, I, I want to really cover more of that transition, what that looked like, and uh, some of the challenges that you faced when you were you know, getting out of that federal uh, government job and, and going into the private sector. So uh, sit tight, folks. We'll be right back. PI Perspectives
0: is brought to you by ScopeNow. Have you tried ScopeNow 3.0 yet? Make sure you visit their website and check out the webinar on TikTok investigations. There's some real cutting-edge research tips. Check out Rob Douglas's episode on our program last November to learn more about ScopeNow 3.0 or visit ScopeNow.com. Sign up and use PIP20 for additional savings. TheInvestigatorsToolbox.com also sponsors this episode. Welcome to the future of networking and learning for private investigators. Watch for the official launch on June 1st, 2020. You can learn more at
1: investigators-toolbox.com. And welcome everybody back to PI Perspectives. We are here today with Jim Casey uh, from FCS Global Advisors. Uh, Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Matt. Okay, so before we jumped out, we were talking about uh, your, uh, I guess, your journey of, of getting into the private sector, uh, no longer working for Uncle Sam, and uh, all of a sudden, you've you got to start from, uh, from the bottom and make your way up. So talk to me a little bit about your experience and, and how you got through it.
2: Sure. So, I mean, it really is interesting that uh, a, a lot of great investigators, people who are really good at hitting the streets and knocking on doors and banging out interviews and putting together cases... You know, if they don't have a, an appreciation for the business aspect of the business, it can be really detrimental to what they're trying to do. And it's a struggle for all of us who who worked in a in a government sector where you don't worry about those things. Right. You show up to work, you do your job, and the you know, paycheck comes every two weeks, and it's great. But if you don't understand those things, you really need to engage with somebody that can help you do it. A great accountant is is invaluable. You, right. you, can, you can off some of that to them. You know, one of the one of the really interesting aspects when I was in the man guarding side of this company, it, it boiled down to, and it was an interesting dynamic, pretty much everything costs in that business a dollar an hour. So we had, uh, for example, contracts in Washington, D.C., about 700 officers that worked up there for uh, DHS, uh, Federal Protective Service and such. So if I went up there to audit in Jacksonville some of our operations, everything I did when I went up there cost a dollar an hour.
3: Right.
2: And what that means is, um, you know, a, a, a round trip ticket to Washington, D.C. might be 500 bucks. That means some officer standing on post earning whatever his uh, compensation, whatever we charge a client, a dollar an hour is what it costs. Five hundred hours of that person standing on post, post is what it costs me to fly to Washington, D.C. If I stayed at a hotel, if I got a meal, if I had to take a taxi, everything was a dollar an hour. It was a really interesting dynamic and it allowed me to put that sort of cost into perspective that, you know, everything you do in business has to be paid for. There's no overhead, there's no government overhead, there's no taxpayers that are sort of funding that operation. So, you know, the profit uh, margins are can be thin, but you really got to work the business angle.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's a little more real when it's your own, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was definitely a a challenge I had when I started and, you know, I'm, I'm the complete opposite. Right. So I never had law enforcement. Um, my background, it just didn't work out that way. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's always so funny because, you know, the first, first thing people ask me when I meet them and they're like, Oh, you know, where'd you retire from? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, not, no, nowhere yet. (laughs) Uh, hard Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know a lot of people, which is always good. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. There's the challenge on that and just, you know, learning how I think to be uh, a business owner and an investigator, because you really have to wear both hats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You got to know how to market. You got to know how to, how to service a client and, uh, you know, get, get repeat business. Um, and you got to actually get the job done. And when, it, when you do start it, and if it's just you, when you do start, you really got to do everything. Um, so it, it, I always imagined that the, uh, the access to data and information was something that was a big difference too, right? He, you, you've got uncle Sam, you have the ability to, to, you know, have access to things. Now you don't. And, uh, you kind of got to got a fend for yourself. Is that like just, a, a, a wives tale or is that something that's, that's real?
2: No, it's real. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, the ability to walk into, I don't know, a business, a bank, uh, anywhere and drop a subpoena. Right is is huge i mean and and, you know in our business you don't have that luxury you can't walk into somebody and and compel their testimony or show them some creds that say fbi i need to talk to you i mean that really puts people on the defensive and gives you that sort of position of advantage to work the interview you walk in and say jim casey private investigator they're like you know what do you want to know um so yeah i mean absolutely it's a it's a huge advantage to have that government infrastructure behind you as opposed to trying to do this as a as a private investigator a private person just working with open source information
1: right but it's not impossible you know like to for us to do our job and get things done you just got to be creative in how exactly. you do it and you know exactly you know the, the information is there you just need to know where to look for it so that that's been mm-hmm. my experience so mm-hmm. um do you have a, a, a staff, and obviously you had staff for the security, but do you have investigators that work in-house um, as well, or, or is it just you?
2: So, so here's here's what I did a couple years ago when I was in this business and, and how we'll at least start it from now. Um, there's kind of a self-infrastructure within the former FBI agent uh, community. Um, There's about 850 of us that are involved in private investigations, and we kind of bounce information off each other and bounce leads off each other.
1: That many, huh? That's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's huge. If I have a lead in San Diego, I mean, I don't have to kind of take a flyer on an investigator in San Diego. I don't know. I might not personally know a former FBI agent out there, but I know his training. I know what his writing is going to be like and how we interview somebody. And he knows, by the way best of all, that he's going to get paid <laughs>
1: because <if laughs> always, a
2: former agent engaged him is <laughs> not going to screw him. Right. Yeah. That's, so, that's
1: always important. Yeah, sure.
2: Yeah. So it's almost like a 850 person, uh, investigative agency, kind of.
1: Wow. Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty neat. And yeah. uh, I, I assume your experiences have been, you know, all positive and you, you haven't had any, uh, any issues, right?
2: Not at all. In fact, a couple of years ago when I was doing this, I mean, I, I had, uh, had a pretty complicated death investigation that, uh, a bank came to me from uh, an individual who had a, a trust fund worth, I don't I think it was about 12 or $15 million at the time, and they wanted us to help prove that he was dead so they could disperse the trust fund. Mm-hmm. And I had a former agent from Los Angeles running leads in uh, Mexico, Colombia, Bolivia, Costa Rica, because he had, in his previous experience with the FBI, uh, as a league at in those countries and, and knowing former police officials, the ability to kind of access you know, death records and police records and things like that, and so mm-hmm. I was able to put this investigation together using that resource.
1: Right, right. And yeah. uh, after you came out of the um, uh, of the FBI, you actually didn't uh, jump in right away with with FCS. You you had uh, done some work with a national retailer, also, right?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I worked for myself for about two years. Had a lot of fun doing it. I had a sort of a backup gig as uh, one of five former FBI guys that were working for the PGA Tour, doing security all around the country with the you know the tour players and things like that. Nice. It was about 13 weeks a year. It was it was fun, but um, you know, when a full time job. And I was recruited by a former uh, agent in charge of the Detroit office when I had been up there to go to the national retailer Steinmart and right. run all of their security operations. Really right. heavy on the retail theft, um, you know, shrink, that sort of issue. But what I tried to bring into that operation was higher level issues like, you know, active shooter, like um right. Uh, you know, abuse of personnel in the stores, cyber, um, that was right around the time of the, of the target breach. Sure. And a lot of retailers, Steinmart included, was not, you know, sort of looking at that issue about how they could be a, a victim of a, of a huge cyber breach like that.
1: Right. Trying to be proactive and not reactive on it. right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Brought a lot yeah. of that to them. And then, you know, the FCS uh, opportunity came along because for years, I mean, when I first got to Jacksonville, one of the first individuals on that was a, uh, former NCIS agent who had started this company back in 2000 and put it together and we became great friends and uh, he wanted me to come work for him and, and run operations for, for a couple of years before he decided to kind of branch this off and get a sort of vector over to what my real, you know, wheelhouse was, which is right. investigations and things like that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I have a little bit of that retail investigation background cause that's where I ended up where right? I got kicked around in the beginning um, and I worked for a retail company for for like three years doing uh, mystery shopping and loss prevention mm-hmm, and pre employment mm-hmm. screenings. But man, that was such a proving ground for for like honing my interviewing skills. Right, um, right. I, I really learned how to talk to people, and they teach you how to do you know looking for detection and or like lie detection and and all the other stuff. And they they have tests that you give, and it's a whole psychological thing back and forth. And when I I left that company, what was really interesting is I got out of the field completely and I went into recruiting. And that Mm -hmm. was another great ground for me to learn how to interview people. Because think about it, I'm calling 200 people a day on resumes, interviewing them (laughs) for five or 10 minutes and then saying, okay, you're a good candidate, come in and meet with me. And and then they'd come in and sit down with me for 15 or 20 minutes. And it was all tech related to the company I worked Mm -hmm. for. So I really like learned how to talk to people from person to person, um, in, in these basic skills that you would think are not necessary. Like, Oh, you're just a loss prevention. What's the big deal? You know, there's, there's no real prestige behind it, but it's like, Hey man, you can really learn the human psyche and how to talk to people uh, through having that, that person to person interaction. So I always thought it was a, it was a cool field to be in.
2: Yeah. You get good at it fast, right?
1: Right. And then, you know, they always say like, whatever the person admits to his theft is like a quarter of what they actually took as well. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That was fun too. I know before we, we got online, we said we're going to talk about the life after the FBI, but I I want to dip in a little bit and talk about your experience because you were involved in some pretty high end, um, investigations in the FBI. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about some of the, uh, uh, cases that you worked on and, and, uh, how you were able to, to contribute to, um, Getting justice or or doing what needed to be done,
2: yeah. So, I mean, I I was very fortunate because I I seemed to kind of be around things that happened, and I mean, it wasn't like I was really going looking for something that you know I would be really good at or would you know lend itself to great success. I was just kind of in the right place at the right time. I think a lot of cops and former agents will tell you that, at least if they're honest, they will. Um, the, the first case I was, I was a young agent in Detroit, we put together a What we called the FBI a Group One undercover. Group One meant that it was longer than six months and it cost more than a hundred thousand dollars to run, probably more than that now, both in time and certainly in expense. But it was a really fascinating case at the time. It was the you know middle 90s, early early to middle 90s, and and we were running you know literally an import export business for luxury cars, uh, boats, you know high end vehicles and things like that, and you know we had targeted a number of of thieves, not just in the Detroit area, but we had people from, uh, you know, Salt Lake city, Utah, California, Arizona, that started bringing this stuff to us. Wow. It was a fascinating case. We, we wrapped up a number of individuals, two of them ended up on, on America most wanted you know, probably recovered about $7 million in vehicles. Wow. The whole thing lasted a total of about three years and it was just great fun to run that thing. Right. Um, probably one of the highlights of my time in Detroit, really.
1: So what, w- um, what were some of the challenges of, of seeing that through?
2: So, you know, we had two undercovers that were full time and, uh, you know, in the Bureau, when you work undercover, it's, it's not really like you see on TV where you just take off your uniform and, you know, go undercover for an afternoon. It's really kind of a, a dedicated assignment where these guys, you know, assume another personality. They don't go to the office. Um, you know, we have contact agents that work with them to make sure that psychologically they're OK. Sure. Um, it, it was really very in-depth. Um, you know, the challenges of it were. You know, quite frankly, one of the biggest challenges, we had so much success. We had three different individuals that had nothing to do with each other. They were bringing so much stuff to us. We had to kind of keep them separated so they didn't run into each other.
1: (laughs) You don't want one agent shooting another agent by accident.
2: And we had to kind of keep – we had to put some operations on hold where you normally would like shut them down arrest them, stop buying stuff from them. You had to kind of put them on hold so you can continue with a couple of the other subjects. Wow. So I mean, it was really pretty interesting the way that worked out, but in the end it all worked out and uh, everybody went to jail and we had, you know, pretty good success with eventually the, the individuals that disappeared with us on uh, became fugitives, America's most wanted literally helped capture both of them. So wow. it, it was, That's it was a big success.
1: That's pretty cool. All right. So give, yeah. give me another one.
2: So uh, one of the most uh, interesting cocktail party stories I tell is, is my contribution to the Pan Am 103 case, which you know folks remember in December of 1988. Pan Am 103 left uh, London Heathrow, headed for New York JFK, blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, 288 passengers, some of them coming home for Christmas break, mm-hmm. were, were all killed. Um, you know, how I got involved in that literally goes back to two years before that. 1986, I'm a young diplomatic security agent in a small counterterrorism op- operations section. I go over to Lomé, Togo, a country on the west coast of Africa, to do a, a minor investigation that really didn't seem to be related to anything. It was, it was sort of a Libyan-backed insurrection in the government back then, if you think about it, if you remember... The U.S. government had a big interest in Libya because of uh, some terrorist activity that sure. the Libyans were involved in and all that. So I went over there, and uh, among a number of things that I recovered over there as part of a team uh, was a pretty sophisticated timer. We put it in a, a diplomatic pouch, literally brought it back to the United States. It got swapped around between the bomb data center of the FBI and uh, the CIA, and nobody really could figure out anything about it flash forward two years later 1988 pan m103 blows up flash forward a couple years later about 1990 91 92 um there's kind of a famous picture that was uh (coughs) in time magazine on the news of a of an fbi uh bomb data center agent who identified a small chip that had been embedded in part of the bomb of pan m103 and they thought this thing was unique they eventually Narrowed it up to the timer that I'd recovered four years earlier and discovered that it was the same. This, this came from the same batch of some of exactly 20 timers that had, that had been built by a company in Switzerland for the Libyan intelligence service. Wow. And that went on to become one of the most critical pieces of evidence to prove that the Libyans, the two Libyan intelligence service officers, were responsible for planting that bomb on Pan Am 103 that blew it up. So, pretty interesting case.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, that's a. That's so- that's global uh, investigating going on right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very cool. Can Can you tell me a little bit ab- about uh, maybe a case or two for FCS that that you thought was interesting, or maybe it turned out a little bit differently than you thought it would, or or um, you know surprised you a bit?
2: Yeah. So I'll go back to um, you know sort of the, the company that became FCS Global Advisors. Um, I talked about that death investigation we did, which which was very interesting. Right. There was another investigation that we did that was a uh, a financial services company, a pretty good sized financial services company, came to us and said we have a uh, investment product that we've been providing to customers who are qualified to invest in this. It's a you know it's a complicated product, but we're not sure that. The product is legitimate. It seems that there's a problem with the company that's providing this product, with providing 1099s, with providing financial documents to the people who have invested invested in it. So, you know, we did kind of a deep background on the individuals who started this company, found out they had other companies that kind of went bust, found out they were using mail drops as sort of the official address of the company, found out they were living in apartments that they had just moved into surprisingly i got one of the principals of the company to um agree to an interview which was not beneficial to him because it became obvious that,
1: that's the old jedi you know? mind trick from the fbi congratulations
2: <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was bogus i mean this this company that you know was seemingly providing a building like a medical product that was supposed to help with kidney disease or something like that it just the whole thing was bogus and so we worked together a pretty comprehensive report to the uh, financial services company that was promoting this and saying, you know, basically you need to take this to the FBI or the SEC because it's, it's a scam.
1: Right. Let's talk a little bit about maybe some advice you can give some agents or people that are working in law enforcement that are thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm a year or two from retiring or I just retired. What next? How do I start? What what advice can you give them?
2: So my, my first bit, bit of advice would be to start early. You know, don't wait till two weeks before you retire. You know, when I, when I was the agent in charge, I, I felt so bad about this. These guys, we had a mandatory retirement agent, uh, age in the FBI. You had to be, if you're 57, you were, you're out 57th birthday. Goodbye. Thanks for your service. Right. And, and some, some guys just never really saw that coming. They didn't plan for it. And they would, you know, come in and ask for extensions. And, you know, my advice is think about this, you know, if you're, if you're on that sort of bubble where you're a drop, or you know you're going to retire soon, uh, you know, do some do some talking to people who went before you. Get mentor with people. Talk to, you know, uh, officers or agents who are in whatever field you're thinking about going to, and and get their advice. And the second thing is, you know, sort of think about that business angle. You know, don't don't be cheap. Get a a, a good accountant um, you know, set up the proper licensing, set up the proper LLCs, all of those things are so critical to your success. Um, you're not just going to be able to hang out a shingle and go knock on doors and bang out reports like you did when you were an officer or an agent, you have to have that infrastructure behind you. Right. So, you know, take the time to do it. That that's kind of my, my best advice.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I I would say is, you know, definitely network and, um, you know, join state associations, um, uh-huh. national associations, anywhere where you can network with other investigators, even online. You know, there's great, some great Facebook groups if you know where they are and you can find them. Uh, you know, they're are good resources there to uh, to tap into, and you know, consider being a subcontractor too, right? So you may have to work at a lesser rate, uh, but you'll get the experience under your belt, and it, you know, if you have steady, if you get steady work that's coming in, it, it's a good way. Uh, to do what you have to do, uh, so you can do what you want to do, right? That's always. Uh, sometimes you got to take the, the you know the jobs that aren't uh, desirable to start off with. I know I did a lot of process serving when I started my business, and I hate process serving, but uh, you, you do what you got to do. You know, to pay the bills, so. Definitely.
2: Oh, you're you're 100 right. And the market you can't you can't overemphasize marketing. Yeah. You know, I tell people it's not one thing. You I know, say, well, I have a Facebook page or I have a LinkedIn account. That's great if you have that. But you have to have everything. You know, you got to have a Twitter feed. You got to have podcasts. You have to have YouTube channels. You have to have Instagram. All of these things sort of feed. And don't get lost in that. It's not all about having social media. Right. But you have to work every angle and sort of bring it together as sort of a hub and spoke so that right in the middle is you and all those things on the outside are those things that are helping you market your business.
1: Sure, sure. And there's plenty of good uh, marketing resources there. Actually, podcast episodes. There's a... um there's a guy named Tanner Rutledge that does the, uh, the Covert Investigator. He's got a mm-hmm. real strong marketing background. Um, that's a great podcast to listen to. Um, the PI Magazine, the podcast, uh, Jim and Nicole from PI Magazine, uh, they have a lot of good um, networking tips and uh, they speak to a lot of really good people. And the other thing to remember about uh, being a, pr- a private investigator, you cannot do everything yourself. There are certain skills and trades that you're good at and there are certain skills and trades that you're not good at. And, uh, you know, find the right person or the right company to help you service that account and make sure you get it done. But it doesn't necessarily have to be you doing that. And I think that's, you know, it's better to to, um, to be the boss and, and just kind of run things and funnel it through to who, you know, to other resources that can get the job done for you sometimes than doing, you know, tripping through an assignment to get it done. Or, or, or maybe you don't have enough time to do it and you're not doing the job that you could do. So that's, that's another piece of advice um, that I think uh, we can throw out there as well.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about branding. It's about marketing. Right. It's about management.
1: Right.
2: You know, if you're doing a great job managing the business, and branding the business, the rest of it
1: will sort of fall together. Yeah. And, and, you know, the investigative work will be there. You know, we're all, you know, if we're doing this, we kind of have a background to begin with it. And we're probably going to be pretty good at it, you know, unless you really don't want to work. <laughs> you know, if you decide you, you, know, you want to work, the work is there and you'll be able to do it well. And we're all trained well. You know, it's just knowing how to find it how to service the account and, uh, you know, making sure everybody's uh, happy on top of it. So, um, so Jim, what is the, the best way for people to get a hold of you if they have further questions or, uh, or, or maybe they retired from the FBI and they want to be in that network of 850 investigators.
2: So if, if they're retiring from the FBI and they don't know, it's called the trap line. It's a, it's a paper document only, um, that they can get from the ex-agents association. And I'm, I'm sure every, every former agent has access to that, but, yeah, we're on social media. We have a website at fcsglobaladvisors.us, uh, Jim Casey, we're, I'm at, uh, at Jim Casey uh, with a hyphen in the middle, at Jim underscore Casey underscore Instagram, same address. Right. Uh, my email address is uh, jcasey at, u- at fcssecurity.us. So yeah, just Google me, it'll come up and uh, I'm happy to help anybody anywhere I can.
1: Yeah, that, that's great. And if you love all these FBI stories, there's a great podcast that's out there, too. Uh, Jerry Williams, FBI Retired Case Files. That is a great show. She j- actually just had her 200th episode, uh, I think, this week. Um,
2: and, if I, and if I can promote myself on that, Yeah. I, I, I recently did a podcast with her on the yeah. first case I told you about, that undercover operation in Detroit. Sure. And that, that will post uh, the 1st of June. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. So look, yeah, the, we got a teaser here on my show. I got an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how Jerry's going to feel and, about that.
2: <laughs> and I got to promote my buddy uh, Chris Graham, who that that podcast just dropped today. I think. Okay. Who was uh, the supervisor in charge of the McMillions case? Oh uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. We talked. Here talk, in
1: We talked about that. Yeah. I I, I was curious if you were involved in that during your time, but uh, that's cool.
2: I I was not. It predated me here. I worked with all those guys. They did a terrific job. And and really they didn't get the credit they deserve initially because that thing happened in August of 2001, like literally weeks before 9-11. So it it dropped off the radar, but great case.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. So we're just promoting everybody else's show here. So that's great. And (laughs) that's that's cool because there's, there's, you know, Literally 24 hours in a day, so please check out the other shows. Support the other shows. Um, exactly. You know, uh, we, we're, we're all about uh, you know uh, finding good content to listen to. So, hey Jim, this was uh this was a great chatting with you. I, I was looking forward to this conversation actually. Um, uh, I wasn't sure how, how we were going to do this uh, technical wise to make it uh, make sense here, but I, I think we uh, we did a good job here. I'm uh, I'm, I'm happy with uh, with the material. So. Um, you know, thanks uh, again for, for reaching out to me and, uh, you know, uh, making this happen. So this was uh, well, really
2: thank neat. you for the opportunity, Matt. Look forward to listening to more of your great podcasts. And uh, let's do it again sometime.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll catch you guys on the next show. Take care. Thanks for checking out the show today.
0: Can you believe there are 850 retired FBI agents out there that are private investigators? Also, how cool is it? that a little piece of technology in a timer was the stark piece of evidence in the Lockerbie bombing. We also want to thank Crosstract, scope ScopeNow, and the TheInvestigatorsToolbox.com for sponsoring the show. Please folks, check out their sites and consider using their services. Make sure you use code PIP20 for additional savings. Next week, Matt welcomes back Nick Himonitis to discuss Bitcoin investigations. Please be sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Now have a great week, stay safe, and thanks for tuning into PI Perspectives.